Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to An Amber A Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Fisher. Today, we are going to talk about insulin resistance in PCOS. I want to update this uh, topic a, a bit because I was looking back as I was sending an email to my email subscribers. Shout out to you guys for, as I'm like, I know I've talked about insulin resistance before many times. It's a favorite topic of mine. So I'm scrolling back through my old podcasts and I'm like, where is it? Where is the podcast specifically about insulin resistance and PCOS? And I found one, but um, as I was listening to it, I was like, okay, I have more that I could add. Let's do a whole new topic. Topic. Let's do a whole new podcast on this topic. Okay, so we're going to get into that. Before I do that, let me get into a few little housekeeping things, then we'll get right into the content. You can skip this part. It'll probably be about three minutes if you don't want to hear this part. But number one, this is going to be the last podcast of 2022 and season two. I have got some really good guests lined up for season three. I'm very excited to share them with you guys, but I think I'll keep them a secret for now. Um, so we will have some really good guest interviews for next year. We're transitioning the podcast to be almost totally PCOS driven. Um, so a lot of the content that's going to be coming up is going to be PCOS related. So that's very exciting. And then, um, the final thing is that this is, uh, the enrollment period for the functional PCOS group program. So, As you guys know, I have two versions of functional PCOS. Functional PCOS, the course, is sort of like the self-paced course that I have that you can take. That's all of my kind of information about PCOS and how I work with my clients and things like that in a little pretty package. And you can do that anytime. But the functional PCOS group program is a 12-week program where myself and my partner, Hannah Mule, who runs The Conscious Nutritionist, where the two of us um, get together every week with a small group of students, um, and we are going to have some one-on-one sessions with them, helping them through their PCOS. It's kind of like working one-on-one with me, except it's a little bit more budget friendly. Um, and you get to actually see me more because you get to meet with me every week as part of the group. So we will have weekly lectures. We're going to have, uh, there's lots of bonus materials. There's meal plans for every week. There's grocery lists. I mean, it's a full comprehensive experience. There's stuff about supplements, labs, like facial hair, all the questions that I get a lot of, there's going to be modules and deep topics on, and we're going to also have some guests come in. Um, Dora from your fertility coach, Dora, who also happens to be the health coach of my practice. Shout out Dora. She's going to be coming um, to do a talk on fertility. And then um, Jen Mason from Sabo Wellness is going to come and do like a mind body you know, thing, guided meditation situation with us, talk about mind-body techniques for improving the PCOS adrenal response. So it's a very comprehensive group program. Very excited about it. This is the second time Hannah and I have run it and we have made some really important improvements based on the feedback from the last group. The feedback from the last group was overwhelmingly positive. People had a really good experience with it. And um, you can find all of their little testimonials and reviews on the group info page, which I will link in the description of this episode. Um, So hope you can join us. We're already half full. So if you want to be part of it, um, I would jump on that. I would jump on that soon because we do expect to sell out and the group will begin in January, uh, January 18th, I think is our first night. All right. So let's talk about insulin resistance, shall we? 
Um, why are we talking about this today? Well, I am in the middle of a series on Instagram and uh, TikTok about this topic. Um, this is kind of a soapbox for me because I am one of those people who I'm probably going to be talking to today who thought that they didn't have insulin-resistant PCOS. Um, now, if you know anything about my approach to PCOS, you know that we I look at the root cause issues of PCOS. So I'm more concerned with what are the deeper issues that are driving PCOS symptoms than I am with the symptoms themselves. Obviously, the symptoms are the things that are the most frustrating, but it's the driving issues that are really what we need to address to see improvement in the symptoms. Otherwise, we're just always going to be throwing pills at stuff and it's just not going to work. Um, so the driving issues of PCOS are the insulin resistance, so high levels of insulin, the inflammation, and the adrenal dysfunction. And Oftentimes, when we hear about those three issues, we hear about them as if they are three completely separate problems and they're three completely separate paths to PCOS. So if you're an adrenal PCOS person, then you're just an adrenal PCOS person and you don't have to deal with inflammation or insulin resistance. But the reality is that all three of these issues are connected and they kind of cause problems with, for each other. So if you are insulin resistant, it's very inflammatory. It's also really hard on your adrenals. Um, if you are have adrenal dysfunction, it raises your blood sugar and makes you more insulin resistant. It also is very inflammatory. So, you know, they're all connected um, and they all kind of drive each other. My point being that even if you feel you don't have an insulin issue with your PCOS, um, I would tell you that it's still important to eat for blood sugar balance. It's still important to eat an insulin resistance friendly diet because it's going to help those other issues too. Um, and also just because so many people slip through the cracks on insulin resistance and think that they don't have an issue because they have quote unquote normal labs, um, but actually are dealing with insulin resistance issues. And so I'll explain briefly why that is and, and what can happen there. Um, but essentially those with PCOS are often dealing with something called hyperinsulinemia, which is not very well caught on basic blood sugar lab work. Um, so what, when you have basic labs run at your doctor's office, they're typically looking for signs that your blood sugar is too high. So they're testing your A1C and they're testing your fasting glucose level, right? And as long as those things are normal, they'll tell you, oh, you're good. You don't have insulin resistance, but that's a very basic understanding of what insulin resistance can look like because insulin resistance doesn't always cause you to have issues bringing down your blood sugar. Um, in fact, one of the earlier stages of insulin resistance that most people with PCOS, especially in their, you know, younger years are dealing with is something called hyperinsulinemia, which means too much insulin. And that too much insulin will bring your blood sugar down to either a normal level or often sometimes you'll even dip into low levels of blood sugar between meals and things like that. And so on basic labs, you're going to look totally normal and totally fine. And yet you're still going to be dealing with a lot of PCOS symptoms driven by too high levels of insulin. So this exactly happened to me. And I think that's the reason it's such a soapbox for me. And, you know, I, I often feel like I'm like beating a dead horse. Like, I don't really like that phrase. I guess I, I need to find a different phrase to say than that. But you know what I mean? I'm just like, I feel like I'm constantly harping on this. Um, hopefully it doesn't feel like that to you, but it's only because I'm trying to say you from the issue that I dealt with for so many years, which was that I fell within the normal range on the BMI chart. And because of that, my doctors assured me that there was no way I could possibly have insulin resistance. Um, I went one time to a doctor to tell him about my kind of hypoglycemic episodes that I would have. And he told me that what I was dealing with was something that he liked to call teenage girl disease which was essentially, he said that I wasn't eating enough. Um, and that's why my blood sugar was getting low, but you know, <laughs> ah, so frustrating looking back because he had the opportunity to kind of educate me on blood sugar, or at least refer me out to a dietitian or somebody who could help me figure out how to eat more balanced meals. I was certainly eating enough. 
I just wasn't eating in a balanced way. And so my blood sugar was getting really low because I was making too much insulin. But no, that's not the, that's not what I got. And I think a lot of people have that experience um, of being dismissed. Now, if you are overweight, um, you tend to have kind of the opposite experience where they blame everything on your weight, right? Everything's, you're blamed on your weight. It's your body fat that's the problem. Your body fat's making you insulin resistant. And that's the issue. The reality is more gray and complex for both sides of the problem here. You know, body fat does create an inflammatory response that does make you more insulin resistant. It's true. The research does show that. Um, and so the more body fat you carry, the more insulin resistant you're likely to be. Um, but at the same time, there's a reason why you became where you, why you carry extra body fat in the first place, because when you are insulin resistant from the beginning, it makes it much more likely that you're going to carry body fat. And even those of us in the normal range of the BMI chart with PCOS tend to carry a lot of our body fat in our middle. I certainly have always had this issue. Most folks with PCOS are going to be like what we would call apple shaped, right? Um, where are my nineties? Where are my nineties girls that we were all like, you know, categorizing ourselves as apple shape or pear shape or whatever. Anyway, most of us are apple shaped because we're carrying extra body fat in our middle. And, you know, this is still the case for me. Um, I know I've talked with, uh, Hannah, who the conscious nutritionist who I run the group program with, she still deals with this issue as well because, no matter how, you know, perfectly you eat, you still, there's a lot of genetic factors that go into PCOS. And so you still have this propensity towards insulin resistance, but you can manage it and you can get yourself to a place where you're in a much better spot with all of that stuff. Um, the thing is, if you ignore that it's an issue or you pretend like it's not an issue, that's when you really do yourself a disservice um, because you're missing out on this prime opportunity to really improve your symptoms um, by making some very simple changes. So highly frustrating experience for many of us where we've got normal labs. Um, so let's talk a little bit about labs first. So, you know, there's a lot of different labs that actually can point to signs with insulin resistance issues or they're associated with insulin resistance issues. So if you've ever had abnormal, you know, cholesterol blood work, that's highly correlated with insulin issues. Um, if you've ever had your hormones tested and you have the uh, high LH to FSH ratio in PCOS, you know, typically LH, which is your luteinizing hormone um, and FSH, which is your follicle stimulating hormone. Um, in the normal person, they're supposed to be a one to one ratio in PCOS. They tend to be a two to one with higher LH. That's one of the reasons why we don't ovulate as often. And, uh, high LH is associated with, you know, insulin resistance also associated with inflammation. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that, you know, sometimes that's the only marker on blood work that I find of potential insulin resistance because doctors either won't run the stuff that I would like them to run or they do, but it falls, you know, it's kind of like in a gray area. So um, there's not a lot of really great testing for insulin resistance that's easy to do. Um, some of the most, you know, the most accurate testing for insulin resistance is just far too expensive and, um, impractical. And so it just doesn't get run. So we just kind of have these like things that sort of point to the fact, um, without actually testing it super well. Um, so if you've never had a fasting insulin run, uh, this is something that I highly recommend having run. It's very easy to run. It can be run at the same time that you get your fasting glucose run. Um, but you are going to have to request specifically a fasting insulin. I've had so many people tell me that they told, went to their doctor and said, I'd like to have a fasting insulin run. And the doctor ran the fasting glucose because the doctor, sometimes if a doctor's real old school, they've been in a, they, they're not real up to date on like the latest stuff with insulin resistance, which you can't blame them for because they've got a lot of stuff to keep track of. Sometimes they're not aware that a lot of doctors are running this now. And so they think you mean the glucose. Like they think that you're the one who doesn't know what you're talking about. Um, but no, you have to specifically specify the fasting insulin. It's great to have a fasting glucose too, but the fasting insulin can be really helpful. 
If you have your insulin levels and your blood sugar levels, you can do something called the HOMA IR calculation. I'll link to a calculator online where you can do that. And there's a lot of good evidence that that calculation um, can be a good indicator of if you have insulin resistance. Uh, You could also think about wearing a continuous glucose monitor. I did this for a while. I actually have a podcast about my experiences with it. It was really illuminating for me um, because it showed me my exact sort of responses to foods. And yeah, I mean, things that I thought I was probably um, not having a blood sugar response to, or I didn't think it was as bad as it was, were like, you know, I actually was having a really big blood sugar spike. And so sometimes with PCOS, um, a a glucose monitor is not going to show you your insulin levels, but it will show your your reactivity to foods. And so um, oftentimes the variability of those spikes, you know, you go up higher and you come down faster and that kind of thing can be indicative of, of insulin resistance because it, it indicates sort of a, a difficulty of your body figuring out how much insulin do you need at any given time, right? And especially if your blood sugar gets low while wearing a CGM, that definitely can be um, part of that, that. So I'll link to that as well because I I am partnered with NutriSense and I have like a code, $25 off code or whatever if you guys want to try that. Sometimes your HSA will cover a CGM as well, especially if you've got like PCOS because it's, you know, insulin resistance is like a well-known aspect of PCOS. So you might try that. Um, They can be kind of expensive. So if you, you know, if it's not in your budget to do something like that, there are other ways to kind of figure out your issues with with insulin, which we're going to talk about today. But I do just want to say that, you know, um, whether you have lab work that confirms you're insulin resistant or not, that's really not the point. Um, I guess I get a little bit frustrated because I, I get a lot of questions about this same thing a lot. Like how, what labs can I ask for? What labs can I get run to confirm for sure? I think societally, we place too much importance on labs. I think we, we, we trust, like we bow down at the altar of labs. You know what I mean? Like if a lab doesn't say in flashing letters, insulin resistance, we're like, well, I don't have insulin resistance. Um, if it doesn't say inflammation, I don't have inflammation. Um, but we don't really understand as, you know, the average layman, like what goes into creating the labs that we actually get tested for, like, did you know, (laughs) did you know, here's a PSA, different labs, different lab companies have different reference ranges um, for different things. Um, Did you know that reference ranges? uh, So what we would determine as quote unquote normal on a reference range are determined by the average, um, the average level of a sampling size of average people. And did you know that because of that, certain labs, the reference ranges continue to get updated as people continue to have their biochemical issues um, or their biochemical levels change with the generations. So whereas like, I I believe this is the case, don't quote me on this because I'm remembering like a 60 minutes episode or something, but I believe it's, it was testosterone. Um, but as, you know, as generations have come and gone over the last like 30 years, um, or as people have grown up over the last 30 years, I guess the testosterone levels in men have drastically changed. You know, this is like one of those things where people are starting to get real concerned. Um, but because the testosterone levels have changed, the reference ranges of what's normal for testosterone has also changed. Does that make sense to you? Because <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. Like if 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 there's a such a profound issue that it's literally changing the reference range of what's normal, um, maybe we shouldn't be changing the reference range. Maybe we should look at why is this happening? Um, so the same thing kind of goes for other labs, like the reference ranges will get updated with time. And so we can't, um, we can't just say like, just because on a reference range, it it says it's normal means it's normal. Here's a couple of examples of this where in functional 
medicine, you know, they would say that this is not normal. So number one, um, with a fasting insulin. So most reference ranges are like up to 25 is going to be normal. But in functional medicine, they like to see a level under 10, ideally closer to five. So if you get a fasting insulin run and it's 20, your doctor was, might be like, oh yeah, that, that's good. You're in the normal range. But actually that can be very indicative of hyperinsulinemia. So be careful about that kind of thing. Now, if you want um, more mm, information about what exactly the ideal reference ranges of different things specifically for PCOS would be, that's all in my course and group program. So um, I go into more depth on that in those different containers. Um, so, you know, you can look into those things if you, if you want more information on that, but that's one example. Another example would be with your TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone. Normal reference ranges up to four is normal, but in functional medicine, we like to see a number two or below. So yeah, you know, you're looking at a big range there. And let's say you've got a TSH of 3.5. Your doctor might say that's normal, yet you might be dealing with thyroid-related issues. We would call that subclinical hypothyroidism. So it can still be causing problems um, and it's still something to look at. And the other thing to keep in mind is literally one in three Americans is diagnosed as pre-diabetic now. That's a lot of people. And if we understand that prediabetes is not something that you just like wake up with one day, but something that develops over time. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. And most people don't realize that they have an issue until they get that prediabetes diagnosis. It makes sense that a lot of us are falling through the cracks. A lot of us are developing the insulin resistance issues that are going to eventually lead to prediabetes, but we are not, um, you know, we're not, we're not aware of that because the right lab work isn't being done or the right lab work doesn't exist. Okay. So don't, uh, don't let labs, I guess, dictate what you don't let labs prevent you from, from working on something that your heart and intuition knows is an issue for you. And I know that advice can run into a gray area because some people take that kind of thing and go way too far into like the alternative health world and get real crazy. I still believe that it's very important to have a balance between conventional strategies and uh, complementary or alternative strategies. I think they work really well together. Um, so I don't want you to run in the other direction, but I think, um, we also disconnect ourselves so much from our own intuition on these issues that, um, we really do ourselves a disservice. Like if your gut is telling you, you know what, I don't feel real great when I eat a lot of sweets and I seem to get really tired after I go to the cheesecake factory, um, personal experience there, uh, or, you know, I'm getting low blood sugar between meals. Like I'm getting really weak and shaky, or I feel like I have to snack every couple of hours or else like I get nauseous or whatever. Um, I've got skin tags. I've got dark patches of skin on the back of my neck and the backs of my, um, elbows and knees, all that kind of stuff. Those are all signs of, of insulin resistance. In fact, I would encourage you to just Google signs of insulin resistance. Does this sound like you, um, you know, do you feel like you blow up and gain weight really fast after you eat a lot of starchy foods? Um, that's not normal. That's, that tends to be associated with insulin resistance. Um, 
just ask my husband who is six foot three and can literally eat as many sweets as he wants and never gains a pound. But truthfully, I'm not exaggerating here. If I, (laughs) if I go out and I have, you know, dessert and I have like a glass of wine, I kid you not, like I, I gain weight so quickly off of that stuff because it's very hard on my insulin resistance. So, um, the point is don't disconnect your own intuition about your health. Your intuition is powerful. Your intuition is important. Um, I could get into tons of stuff about the patriarchy and all of that stuff and how women's intuition has historically been deemed as this unreliable thing, but let's not, let's not get into that today. Cause we're talking about insulin resistance, but I just want you to take care of yourselves and just, you know, pay attention to this stuff. Okay. So as a nutritionist, what am I looking at, um, to help somebody with their insulin? resistance. So there's really two phases of managing insulin resistance. There's the phase of reducing the amount of insulin being produced in the first place. And then there's the phase of sensitizing the person to insulin. And so there's kind of two sets of strategies that go with that. Now, reducing the insulin resistance in the first place is usually what uh, what I would do first. So some, some nutritionists have the opposite approach. They start with sensitization first And eventually they hope it works out into reducing insulin resistance. I find that typically in PCOS, the insulin resistance is already so far gone and there's already so much uh, happening with it that working on reducing first tends to be the better approach because people tend to feel better faster. They tend to get more results, especially if they've been trying really hard to drop body fat or something like that. It it does tend to help with that quicker. Um, So reducing the insulin in the body requires eating differently. Um, and there's some strategies for that. So, um, a big strategy is my, in my most important favorite strategy is to add 20 grams of protein, at least to each meal, I guess 15 would be the minimum, but I really am aiming for at least 20. Um, what that looks like is about a piece of pro a protein, usually, I mean, animal protein is kind of preferable, um, but about the size of the palm of your hand, at least. Sometimes people benefit from more, um, from a higher protein diet, especially if they're trying to lose weight, but this is a good place to start just to balance the amount of insulin being produced. You start with having about 20 grams of protein with your meals. You try to aim for 35 grams of fiber a day as well. So about 10 grams of fiber per meal. Just doing that alone is going to really slow the release of sugars into your bloodstream. So your insulin has a chance to sort of catch up without going haywire. Um, So you'll be able to produce insulin a little bit more slowly and in a more balanced way. And it'll prevent these kind of spikes, um, which then can lead to low blood sugar. So the protein and fiber is huge. I mean, truthfully, just doing that is a big first step and will make a huge difference. The very first thing I ever did when I figured out that I probably had insulin resistance and needed to work on that um, was adding meat to every one of my meals. I used to eat a lot of meals where, you know, it was just like, I didn't really eat meat or it would be like just dairy, you know, like just plain macaroni and cheese or like a quesadilla or whatever. Um, And dairy does have some protein, but um, Back then, you know, I'd eat like cereal, for example, and that's a meal that has a lot of carbohydrates. It has very little protein and it really doesn't have that much fat either, especially because back then we were using skim milk. Um, And so within a couple of hours, my blood sugar would drop too low because my body would make too much insulin from that. Well, what I did was I just literally changed and added like some breakfast sausages with my cereal. I still ate the same thing, but <laughs> but I added some protein to it. And guess what? I, my blood sugar wouldn't get low anymore. Now, was my insulin still going too high? Probably. But it was preventing me from having those low blood sugar episodes that were so uncomfortable because when my blood sugar would get too low, then I would have to eat to bring it back up. And so I would end up kind of like eating a lot more starch and carbs than I really even felt good with that day, just to try to balance everything out once it would go too low. 
So the protein really, really helps. That's the first thing I would do. Just start adding meat to everything. Eat the same way. Just start adding meat. And, um, you know, if that doesn't help, then move on to some of these other strategies. But I think that's a really, really big first step. The fiber is also huge. Um, and switching your diet to a more whole foods diet where most of your um, carbohydrate sources also have fiber. So things like legumes, things like, you know, sweet potatoes and regular potatoes that have some fiber. That is also helpful there too, because, you know, if your starch is already packaged with fiber, then you get your fiber and you also get to enjoy it. Some like who doesn't love potatoes? I'm a huge potato person. Um, same thing with fruit. You know, fruit is kind of like packaged up. It's got sugar in it. Yeah. But it also has a lot of fiber. So it prevents that blood sugar spike from being too big. Um, and then work on less than 10 grams of added sugar a day. I know I've said that before. That's easier said than done. But if you eat anything with a label, that's where you want to start. Look at the added sugar and try to get under 10 grams a day. It's harder than it seems. <laughs> it's harder than it seems like it's going to be, but that will help a ton um, because it is the sugars that you eat or the foods that break down into sugars. So um, anything that's got uh, fructose, glucose, or you know, is a starch that breaks down into glucose. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, foods like um, potatoes, pasta, bread, um, rice. Um, oh gosh, what are some other examples of starchy foods? Juices, uh, sodas, candy, anything, any baked goods, muffins, cakes, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of obvious, I think, but corn, I think people don't realize that grains and then also there are some starchy vegetables. The root vegetables tend to be starchier that those can all, those all break down into a type of, you know, sugar in the body, which does raise your blood sugar. And then your insulin does have to compensate. But my point is, if you, if you switch to a more whole foods diet where everything's already packaged up with its fiber, right. And you're eating more protein and you're reducing the amount of added sugars, which are sugars that are added to those foods. So if you drink a smoothie and they added honey to it, or you drink a matcha latte, but you put sugar in it or whatever. The, that's the kind of stuff that you want to get rid of. Um, sweetened beverages, stuff like that. Because those are the things that will really spike your blood sugar fast. And also that are pretty easy to take out of the diet. And you can still eat a lot of these other foods that, you know, also have some importance and nutrition. It's really important to, you know, certain whole grains are some of your only sources of certain B vitamins. So it, it, you know, they, it can be important to add these things in. Um, a good rule of thumb is any food that's starchier. So anything from that list that I mentioned before, uh, any whole foods that are on that list, about one fourth of your plate should be filled up with those kinds of things. That tends to be a good middle ground where you can, you can eat some, you can enjoy some of that stuff. Um, but you're not overdoing it and spiking your blood sugar too much. Some people, if you're more active, you can eat more. Um, if you're less active, you might need to eat less. If you're already in the pre-diabetes or type two diabetes range, you might need to eat less. And then, um, there's some strategies with how you eat and when you eat this stuff. So your starchier foods, let's say you love croissants. I don't blame you. I love a good croissant. Let's say you you love croissants and you like to go get one every weekend. That's great. One strategy for that being easier on your blood sugar and your insulin would be to go have brunch after you do a strength workout. Um, it's not a matter of like, oh, you need to work out to earn this food. That's not what I'm saying. But what doing a strength workout will do is clear glycogen. Even something like a hike would be great for this too. It'll clear glycogen, which is where your muscles store extra glucose, extra sugars. So it'll clear some of that out so that instead of the sugars going directly into your bloodstream and needing to like be dealt with by insulin and going into your cells and potentially contributing to, you know, more of this problem, a lot of that sugar will actually go straight into your muscle, which it can then be used later for fuel when you need it. 
And this is just how the body works. And so um, it can be very beneficial to eat your starchiest meal after something like that. Um, it can really help. And some people like to, you know, eat fast, like do workouts fasted and stuff like that for this very reason. And sometimes that that is helpful. I personally, um, it depends on the time of day that I'm working out. But first thing in the morning, if I'm going um, like on Fridays, I go see my personal trainer in the morning. I usually do that workout fasted. Um, and I've, since I had the continuous glucose monitor, I was able to kind of see like what, what that would do. And it was really nice for my blood sugar balance. Like I could kind of eat whatever I wanted after (laughs) and, um, it wouldn't spike my blood sugar any. So, you know, you can plan your weeks around that stuff. And, um, that's one good way to kind of like have your cake and eat it too, um, without it causing adverse health issues in the long run. You can also follow strategy of eating your protein and your veggies first at your meal. Um, That's because that'll be your protein and your fiber, right? And not only will that fill you up and help keep you full longer, it'll also make sure that you get the right macronutrient content in your day, which is helpful. um, And it will um, help your blood sugar rise slower. It'll also help prevent you from being like overly hungry and eating too many of the starches from the meal. So save the best for last, I guess is what they say. Um, And then, you know, also apple cider vinegar. There is some some research that says that taking a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar kind of diluted in water at the beginning of a meal, a starchy meal, will help prevent the blood sugar from rising too much. And it's, it's, is it going to like totally prevent, you know, your blood sugar from rising if you you're eating just like a really super sugary meal. No, probably not, but it's an easy hack and something that, you know, it's pretty easy to add in. I do it. So I think that's just another little strategy to, to help. And then, um, this next point kind of falls in the reduce insulin thing, but also in the sensitization issue. It's really important for both. And that is getting enough sleep at least, at least eight hours. If you struggle to get eight hours of sleep, there's a lot of other stuff that you need to go into on that front. Um, But if it's more a matter of you just are not prioritizing sleep, you're not going to bed early enough, you're staying up late watching TikToks, I see you. Um, Or you are, um, you know, you're setting your alarm super early so you can get a workout in before your day starts and you're not getting eight hours of sleep. Stop doing that. You've got to get eight hours of sleep if at all possible, because when you don't get enough sleep, it raises your blood sugar the whole next day. Um, It's really hard on your blood sugar balance and insulin. Um, Same thing goes for reducing stress, which, you know, easier said than done, right? I know. And if you want more details on that kind of thing and like actual strategies for that, I have some podcasts on that topic. But um, keeping your stress levels as low as possible is also helpful because when you are stressed, your body um, will raise your blood sugar. Um, Your adrenals kind of are in charge of that. So that's fun. Um, so getting enough sleep is, is huge. Um, in fact, I think getting enough sleep is probably the, besides sunlight, the foundation of health, like even above nutrition, getting enough sleep is more important. If it's between working out and sleep, sleep wins every time. If it's between, um, eating, you know, a super, super healthy diet and sleep, honestly sleep because getting enough sleep helps your body to process everything better. And you just, you can't repair your tissues unless you're sleeping enough. Anyway, it's very important. Uh, So let's talk about the second phase of managing insulin resistance, which is sensitization. So making sure that your body is more sensitive to insulin in the long run. What's interesting about this is it actually sort of requires not the opposite strategy, but, but some stuff that in the reducing phase might be harder. So things like eating more, um, eating more, uh, plant-based foods, like, uh, foods that maybe even have like a little bit more starch or things like that. Lots of variety with your, um, plant-based foods and foods that have a lot of prebiotic fibers in them. 
because these feed good gut bacteria and your good gut bacteria are actually part of what determines how insulin sensitive or insulin resistant you are. So actually your gut plays a huge role in your insulin resistance. So if you've got gut issues, if you're having diarrhea, constipation, things like that, you actually may need to address that first or alongside all of this other stuff because it can play a big role. But prebiotic foods, prebiotic fibers, um, which would be in you know most fruits, vegetables, and then fiber-rich foods are going to have some type of prebiotic in them. But there are some foods that are heavier in prebiotics, things like Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes. Um, I, I ha- believe I have a podcast on this whole topic too. It, any of my podcasts that talk about gut health or inflammation are going to talk about prebiotics in more depth. But feeding your good gut bacteria with that stuff really important for making sure that your gut is healthy, which will then make sure that you're more insulin sensitive. So this is, these are like long-term strategies, right? These are, this is why it's important to not go keto um, unless you absolutely have to, to get that insulin down. Um, because long-term keto just does not have enough fiber. It doesn't have enough nutrients. It doesn't have enough. Um, yeah. It just doesn't have enough of the stuff that you need. So people who are keto for a super long time and then come off of it, they tend to be a lot more insulin resistant. Um, uh, so improving your gut health is really huge. Getting enough sleep is really huge. Reducing your inflammation levels is really important for becoming more sensitive to insulin over time. So that means making sure that your diet is more, uh, nutrient rich. So your diet has a lot more whole foods, unprocessed foods, and a lot more plant foods. Um, it's very tempting. I think you, there are people fall on two sides of the spectrum. It's either very tempting to like go totally plant-based and just eat like, eat like a vegetarian diet. Cause you know, you're thinking, well, it's got so many like beneficial nutrients in it and meat is inflammatory. Um, or else for people to go fully keto or like fully carnivore and just like eat meat <laughs> all day long. Um, the reality is that in the middle is the better place to be. Um, and so meat is not fundamentally inflammatory. There may be some inflammatory aspects of eating a lot of red meat and definitely of eating a lot of processed meats. Um, but in moderation in the diet, I don't find that they actually cause that many issues with people. It's more a matter of, you know, the quality of what they're eating but really meat is very important um, for an anti-inflammatory diet. If you at all can, can have it. Now I know for like religious reasons or ethical reasons, sometimes people are plant-based. And in that case, I do usually recommend that they eat some tofu because tofu is a really good food that has a lot of protein in it. Um, organic, non-GMO if possible. But, um, but if you eat fish and meat, eggs, those types of things. I think those are important parts of a whole foods diet and important parts of having an anti-inflammatory diet because a higher protein diet tends to improve body composition. It also improves insulin resistance because it reduces how quickly the sugars get into your bloodstream. So that's very important, but the fiber aspect, you know, getting your fiber from whole foods means that you're going to have to eat more fruits, veggies, and probably whole grains and things like that. Um, so oats are one of those foods that some people seem to really tolerate well. I know when I did my continuous glucose monitor, oats didn't cause a blood sugar spike at all for me, interestingly enough. But um, when I've had other clients, like clients who have done them and oats were a major spike for them. So it's just, it de- just depends on the person, how they handle certain whole grains. But with time, we want to increase the amount of whole grains in the diet um, because the prebiotics and the fiber in those are helpful long-term for insulin sensitivity. Um, and I think this is partially why the Mediterranean diet seems to work so well. Some people, when they start the Mediterranean diet, it almost seems to make things a little bit worse, um, or they gain weight or whatever, but if they stick with it and follow through for a longer period of time, the research does say that it improves, um, insulin resistance with time. And it seems a little counterintuitive because you're like, there's pasta and there's bread and there's things in this diet. And I do have a, a podcast about the Mediterranean diet and how I kind of modify it up front. 
But long-term, all that, all those beneficial nutrients help make you more sensitive to insulin. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind is trauma healing. Um, now, of course, I'm not a therapist. However, as a person with a lot of trauma <laughs> who has done a lot of therapy work, I can tell you that probably one of the most important things I ever did for my insulin resistance was work with a trauma-informed therapist on my trauma. Um, because what it did is it, it it's helped to regulate my nervous system and your nervous system is very connected to your adrenals, very connected to cortisol, very, very connected to adrenaline and those hormones, which we would call stress hormones. Um, when those are high, your body produces more blood sugar or it lets more blood sugar into your blood. Why? So that you will have the strength and the energy to run from the threat. It's a very primal mechanism. Um, but obviously these days we don't need that. You know, our biggest threats are like someone's mad at us or someone sent us a mean text or, you know, we have a horrible boss or whatever. Nobody's physically threatening us, hopefully, uh, most of the time. And so we don't need that extra blood sugar. Um, what we need to do is reduce the amount of stress that we experience. So that's the cool thing about therapy for me is that I didn't really expect this to happen, but it's helped my anxiety so much so that situations that before would drive me crazy with anxiety and make my cortisol really high don't affect me as much anymore. You know, things that would keep me activated all day now only activate me for 15 minutes or not at all. Um, it's amazing. It, and it, this has taken, you know, a couple of years of therapy, but definitely it's something that I would highly, highly recommend. Another strategy is if you do get stressed and something like that happens, like let's say, you know, somebody, your boss texts you or emails you and is like, I need to talk with you. I'm setting a 3 p.m. appointment. And, you know, isn't that the worst when somebody's like, I need to talk to you. And then they don't tell you about what, and you're just like waiting to find out like, God, give me, give me the cliff notes of what we're going to talk about. Anyway, um, if something like that happens because your blood sugar has risen in response to that threat, you can sort of mimic what the primal sort of response is getting you to do. So you could do something like doing some push-ups or some squats or running, um, in place or, you know, just some sort of like high intensity sort of quick, um, workout wherever you are. Uh, and that will help to deal with not only some of that cortisol and help bring that cortisol down, but it'll also help to bring the blood sugar down. So it can be very helpful as well. You know, little, little strategies. If you kind of are aware of these different things, you can build on them over time. So I know that this is, I, I've given you several things to kind of think about and it might feel very overwhelming and like, oh my gosh, I have to do all of these things all the time. And no, that's that's not the point. You don't have to do all of these things all the time, but also with time, as you continue working on all of this, it will get easier and easier and feel like second nature. I tell my clients this all the time, but healthy eating is something where it's if it's it's not something you've ever done before, it's going to take a lot of time to build those neural pathways. Your brain likes to do the same thing over and over again. Your brain really likes to follow the same pathways. And so anything new that you ever do, any new habit that you're trying to build, it takes time because your brain literally has to rewire itself to remember to do these things and to continue doing them, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to um Give yourself time, give yourself grace and keep going. You got to keep doing it over and over and over again. The more times that you make that choice to do that thing, the more it becomes second nature to you. And I think that's a little bit common sense, but sometimes we don't think about that. We think, you know, it's been a month. We've been trying this and it seems like it's not working. It seems like it's getting harder even. And we're just like, oh, we're so tired. Um, but really you are, when you're at that point, you're really like, you're so close to getting that neural pathway sort of cemented. You just have to kind of keep going. And so I would say, if it's been really hard for you, just focus on one thing, right? Focus on the protein with your meals thing. That's the first place I would start. Um, then start working on the fiber maybe, um, or 
you know, if anxiety and adrenals and all that stuff is a really big deal for you, think about starting to see a therapist, you know, or even just think about starting to do the, the little workout after you get anxiety thing. Um, and just trying that out and seeing if that helps you, if seeing if you feel better after that. And even if you don't do it hundred percent of the time, every time that you do do it, you're building a little bit more on the habit. So, um, I guess my point is just be easy on yourself. This stuff takes time and, and that's okay. It took me, I'm still working on all of this, but it's taken, you know, I would say it took at least a solid decade before I really felt like I got my feet under me with eating healthy and exercising and like doing a lot of the things that I recommend for you guys to do. So if it took me a decade, (laughs) I had to teach myself, you know, hopefully it won't take you as long, but it's still going to take time. Um, And that's okay. You're doing great. I'm proud of you. And I think that's where I'm going to call it for the day um, and for the season. Thank you for listening to season two of the podcast. Um, It was a fun season to do. I know it didn't have as many episodes as season one. That's because season one lasted three years before I decided to start doing seasons. But I'm very excited to come back for season three. Look forward to more podcasts uh, early next year. Likely we'll start posting podcasts again in February. And uh, yeah, thank you for being a listener. If you haven't ever left a review for the podcast, um, five-star reviews on Apple podcasts really help me a lot. They help get the podcast in front of new people, which helps me and my business. And I appreciate it greatly. I have seen some really sweet reviews in the last, uh, couple of months from y'all and I appreciate them. I really, really do. They make my day. Anytime I get a nice like DM or a, or a really nice podcast review or anything like that, it's just like makes my day because a lot of times I feel like I'm just talking to myself. Like I'm literally sitting in my living room right now. Um, (laughs) So it's nice to know that people are out there listening to me. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.